This episode of the Art of Manliness podcast is brought to you in part by The Strenuous Life. The Strenuous Life is an online platform that we created to help you turn your intentions into actions. We've done that in a few ways. We've created 50 different badges based around 50 different skills, hard skills like self-defense, wilderness survival, soft skills like public speaking, social skills, how to be a better husband, better father. We also provide weekly challenges. They're going to push you outside of your comfort zone as well as accountability for your physical fitness, doing a good deed, thinking outside of yourself. Our next enrollment is going to be at the end of March. Head over to strenuouslife.co. Make sure you get your email on on our waiting list. Spots fill fast, so you want to get on that waiting list so you're one of the first to know. And while you're there, you can find out more information about The Strenuous Life, what's involved, what you get. Strenuouslife.co. Hope to see you in the spring. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. We're a month into the new year now. How are you doing on your resolutions? Have you already fallen off the wagon? Maybe the goal you set for yourself was just too big to successfully tackle. You need to think smaller, tiny even. That's the argument my guest makes. His name is Dr. BJ Fogg, and he's the founder and director of Stanford's Behavior Design Lab, as well as the author of the new book, Tiny Habits, The Small Changes That Change Everything. Today on the show, BJ walks us through the three components that drive our behavior, including the simple yet overlooked relationship between motivation and ability. He then explains how to build habits that feel easier and require lower levels of motivation by picking behaviors that are good matches for you and breaking them down into smaller parts. We also talk about the need to tie your habits to turnkey prompts, the importance of celebrating your successes, no matter how small, and the way tiny habits can lead to bigger changes. We end our conversation with why you should think about the process of getting rid of your bad habits as untangling them rather than breaking them. After the show's over, check out our show notes at aom.is slash tinyhabits. All right, BJ Fogg, welcome to the show. Hey, I'm happy to be here. Thanks for inviting me. So I'm really excited to have you on because I've been following your, your work through other people, students you've had on your, your classes that you teach about behavior design. Mm-hmm. And I was so excited to see you have a book, putting this all together in one place. So you've spent your career researching, and developing what you call behavior design. How did you get involved with that? Well, if you rewind about 25 years, I was really interested in the overlap between technology and persuasion or influence which hadn't happened yet, but I, in some ways, just sensed that computers would be designed to influence our attitudes and our behaviors. And I wanted to study this. And so that's what I did in my doctorate work. I ran a series of laboratory experiments to show this could indeed happen, and then predicted it will, and then set out some warnings and some guidelines for this. And I called that persuasive technology. About 10 years ago, my lab's work at Stanford shifted away from persuasive technology. We just really weren't interested in that anymore. We thought we'd really done what we needed to do there. And then it became what we now call behavior design, which is different than persuasive technology. It still has to do with human behavior change, but doesn't have to do anything with technology directly. So the interest is a long held interest. And I think it actually goes back to my Mormon roots. I was raised Mormon in California. And probably most people listening understand that that culture, that religion is a lot about behavior change. There's a lot of restrictions, a lot of things you can't do. And when people become Mormon, they have to make a lot of behavior change. So at least the way I see it in retrospect, I grew up very, very young talking about behavior change and doing behavior change things and helping other people change their behavior. Well, in your work with persuasion technology, this has been used by, I mean, this shaped 
a lot of the apps we use today, Instagram, Uber, like the, the companies that developed these apps, they used insights that came out of your research. Yeah, I think the biggest takeaway from my work is simplicity. So simplicity is the thing that I saw early on that made technologies that engaged people. I mean, everything that people, I mean, unless you're forced to use it like an office suite that was complicated. Yeah, you were forced to use that complicated thing. But everything that people were choosing for themselves and using, the overriding pattern was simplicity. So that's really what I taught and advocated at Stanford and elsewhere. And it's one of my maxims today that you'll find in Tiny Habits is simplicity changes behavior. And so, as you said, you, you shifted focus more to, towards behavior design. It's not just tied to technology. It's about designing behavior, making new habits, untangling habits you don't like. And we'll talk about why you, don't, why you call it untangling, <laughs> not breaking habits. Um, and in this, this model of behavior design, so first off, the behavior design, you have a model that explains human behavior and methods that you can use to change behavior. So let's talk about this model first. Because I think that'll help people understand why we do what we do. And part of that model, yeah. you mentioned simplicity. But let's let, walk us through the FOG model of behavior. Yeah, so there's various models in behavior design. The cornerstone is just this one called the FOG behavior model. And it goes like this. Behavior happens when three things come together at the same moment. Motivation to do the behavior, ability to do the behavior, and a prompt. And that model describes any type of behavior, and it can also be used to understand how to stop a behavior. You remove motivation, or you remove ability, in other words, you make it harder, or you remove the prompt. And I write it out as B equals, so B is behavior, equals M-A-P, motivation, ability, prompt. It's a model, not an equation, but I still write it out with equal sign. And so walk us through like a behavior that can highlight the this connection of motivation, ability, and, and prompt. Oh, wow. There are so many. So let's say that your son's sitting around playing video games and you fix dinner for him and your son is motivated to eat and is capable to eat. But until you prompt your son, say, hey, time for dinner, he's not going to come to the dinner table. So in that case, there's motivation because he's hungry. There's ability because he's just sitting around. He's not busy and doesn't cost anything for dinner. So he has ability. And in that case, the thing that he's lacking to do the behavior, come to dinner, is the prompt. And as you look at any behavior that you do, you will always have some level of motivation. There'll be some level of ability and there will always be a prompt. And so you can look at any behavior you do, whether it's opening a certain email or answering your phone or texting your mom or eating an apple for lunch. All of those behaviors can be understood in terms of those components, behavior, motivation, ability, prompt. But it also helps you design for behaviors. And that's what the tiny habits method is all about. You're hacking those components to make the process and method of habit formation really, really easy to do and really reliable. Yeah, this the, your your behavioral model like was really eye opening. One of the things that I got out of it that really hit me hard was this connection of like a motivation ability, right? If something yeah. is really hard to do, well, that means you're going to need more motivation to do it. But if something's easy to do, you don't need as much motivation to, yeah. to do it. And I am so happy that in my book, Tiny Habits. I unpack that. For the first time, I really dive into the behavior model and I talk about the components and I show that relationship between motivation and ability. And, and you summarized it well. 
And in the, there's a graphic. So yes, there's a written version of the model, but there's also a graphic and there's a curved line on the graphic that shows that relationship. And it's embarrassing to say that it took me like eight years to figure out the right word for that relationship, but I'll share it here. It's kind of geeky. It's a compensatory relationship. They can compensate for each other like teammates. So if motivation is low or weak, then ability has to be high. It has to be really, really easy. In other words, if you're not super motivated to do something, the only way that you'll do it if it's really, really easy to do. On the flip side, if a behavior is hard to do, the only thing that puts you above the action line, the only thing that gets action is it's if your motivation is high. So they're understanding that motivation ability, I used to call, I used to talk about it as trade-offs. It's not really a trade-off. They compensate for each other. And that actually it was that insight that led to developing the tiny habits method. As I looked at my own graphic, the two-dimensional version, I saw on the lower right-hand corner a space where if the motivation's low, you could still do the behavior if it's easy enough, if you make it radically easy. So boom, there's some motivation. It's not zero. And you make it really easy. That means the only thing you're lacking is a prompt. And there was a moment when I figured out how to hack the prompt and then they all came together. And that then became the tiny habits method. So it got derived from looking at my own graphic going, that's a really interesting space right there. The opposite is people picking something hard to do. And if you pick something hard, like I'm going to work out for two hours every day, or I'm going to do CrossFit from now on, or I'm going to you know, save $1,000 a month, that means your motivation has to be high and stay high. You have to sustain motivation. That's really unrealistic. We don't have that much control over our levels of motivation. And that means by setting yourself up for these hard behaviors, these hard changes, you somehow have to magically find a way to keep your motivation high and that doesn't work very well. So Tiny Habits acknowledges that and says, no, no, scale it back, make it really easy so you don't have to mess around with motivation and you don't have to rely on willpower. Well, let's unpack this idea of motivation because I think you're right. When people decide they want to change a behavior, start a habit, they think I got to do something really hard and then I got to motivate myself. And motivation is kind of an interesting part of psychology and uh, behavioral science because you see different definitions of what motivation is. And there's like a different definition of like for the layperson. I think a layperson thinks, well, motivation is like, you know, reading quotes and telling myself mantras and like, <laughs> so how do you define motivation in your behavioral model? Well, it's, it's a driving force. It's something that energizes you to do a specific behavior. I don't think of motivation as something that is generalized to everything in your life. Your motivation shifts context by context in, in some ways, minute by minute. And so say I'm in a context where I'm a researcher at Stanford, that means I'm more motivated to do things that are in line with that identity. But if I'm at a family reunion with my family in Idaho, I have different motivations at that time. What had not been studied academically, and this is a huge surprise to me, I'd already mapped out and understood that motivation shifts over time. And along with some of the boot campers I work with, we named that fluctuation, we called it motivation wave. So that phrase, and I really like that phrase, basically, I like it because waves don't always stay high. They come and go. They're big ones. They're small ones. They shift. But the academic work on this had not existed 
until, oh, there's some early sense of it in 1999 and then more work in 2007. In other words, from an academic perspective, really recently, I mean, that may not sound recent to people listening, but you know, work goes back decades and decades. So it's just in some ways very surprising that there was no acknowledgement or research around shifts in motivation until relatively recently. And the fact is, we've all experienced that in our life. People get really motivated in early January and the motivation drops off. We get motivated for something else around February 14th. We get motivated for something else around April 15th, which in the U.S. is taxes. And so we have different motivations that shift over time. One of the key, what shall I say, challenges is that when people sit down and you said this well and said, hey, I'm going to change and I'm going to do these big things at that moment. When they're making those decisions and making the plan, yes, their motivation is high. And in that moment, they can do hard things. What we seem to be terrible as human beings is projecting our future levels of motivation. Even though we've seen that, oh, you know, two weeks from now, I may not be so motivated. We seem to make the same mistake over and over and over. And we just assume that we'll be able to sustain high levels of motivation which doesn't work. And that's what tiny habits is. Well, in some ways in the book, I um, attack is too strong a word. I uh, dismantle that. I'm just like, hey, people be realistic about what happens with human motivation. And there's no magic way to keep it sustained. And there's a much better way to create habits that doesn't require you to rely on high levels of motivation. And the other problem you talk about with motivation is that people get motivated towards abstract ideas, right? It's like lose weight. It's like, well, okay, but are are you motivated to do the things to lose weight? Like you have to to look at behaviors that will allow you to achieve that that goal. Yeah, and you're right on. You know, there is what doesn't work is trying to motivate yourself toward an abstraction, like lose weight. You know, that is an abstract thing because you can't in this moment lose weight. You can drop down and do 20 or 30 or maybe 50 push-ups in this moment. So that's a behavior. But lose weight is not a behavior. It's an outcome. It's a result of doing other behaviors. So one of the methods I developed over the years was a way to take that outcome or the aspiration, that vague abstract thing, and then break it down into specific behaviors that you can then design for. And that is that's a couple methods put together that I explain in Tiny Habits that can be really liberating and insightful. Somebody might have motivation to reduce their stress. In fact, probably everybody listening to this, I mean, stress is a a massive issue right now in our world and in some ways just getting worse. And so you might just motivating yourself to reduce stress, as you can tell, isn't the best answer. But then some people might guess at the solution. And I'm against guessing. And there's a systematic way to do it. But the guess might be, oh, I'll meditate for 30 minutes a day. That's how I'll reduce my stress. Well, that might be a good match for people, or it might not. For some people, it's a terrific match. For many people, it's a very challenging habit to wire in, especially meditating 30 minutes. So instead of having people go the wrong direction and just focus on these abstract things, and instead of having people just guessing, I love systems. I, I'm just, for even since I was a kid, let's systematize it. And that's what behavior design is. It's a system, step by step, so you don't have to guess. And 
by following the steps, you can derive what is the best new habit for you that will help you reduce stress or lose weight or be more productive or whatever you want. And that means that you can move forward with confidence that you are figuring out the right behavior. And I call that the golden behavior or a set of behaviors, golden behaviors. And then you can put the, you can make those a reality in your life much more readily than I guess like meditating for 30 minutes. So I, I thought it was interesting there. You said there you're looking for matches in behavior. So it, it, you're trying yeah. to find something that you would already want to do. And that's one of your principles throughout this, like help people do what they already want to do. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and it comes down to three criteria. So if you're looking for a, a habit or behavior change to help you reach whatever aspiration, the best matches, the golden behaviors have these three characteristics. Number one, It's a behavior that you want to do. So if you want to be more active, don't pick an exercise that you hate or a behavior you hate. Find something you want to do. In my life, when I'm in Maui, it's surfing. I am just crazy passionate about that. So not everybody has it available to them, but dancing or group activities. Number two, make sure it's a behavior you can do. So again, surfing is not available to people who don't live by waves And dancing may not be available to people who don't have any kind of dance resource, especially if they want to dance with other other people. And then the third criteria, and this is important, it needs to be a behavior that will have impact, that will actually take you toward your aspiration or outcome. A negative example of this or a bad example, uh, and some people are going to hate me for this, is people are set up to believe that taking 10,000 steps a day will lead to weight loss. I challenge that notion. I don't think 10,000 steps a day is very effective at weight loss. It's great at other things and it's great to do, but weight loss is primarily a function of nutrition. And then after that, in my amateur opinion, I would say strength training. But people have believed the media or the advertising around 10,000 steps and they may match themselves with that. And as they do it, they're not seeing the weight loss. So what it's lacking there is that third uh, criteria of it being impactful, of it being effective. So, and I've done this too. I mean, on my journey to lose weight and keep it off, I somehow thought that popcorn was a healthy snack. It turns out it was an awful snack, but that's what I thought. I thought that non-fat yogurt was a great snack. It turns out it's exactly wrong for me. And so matching yourself carefully matters. So again, it's behaviors you want to do, you can do, and that will be effective. That will have impact. And so, so instead of relying on motivation, instead of pumping yourself up, the idea is match yourself with behaviors you want to do. Yeah. And, and that sort of connects to ability too, because you want to find behaviors that are easy to do. Like you want to make it easy for yourself, not harder. Right. Or if you already have, I mean, we'll go back to surfing. My motivation for that is pretty darn high. And so that means it can be a little harder to do. So that means, you know, you know, I don't have to just walk out to the waves. I drive about 12 minutes and get my board off my little Honda element and get in. However, here in California at my home gym, I can't surf. I have <laughs> an air assault bike in my home gym here in the garage. Those are terrible. Yeah, I don't love it, but it's okay. And so what I, you know, so that is 
15 feet away from me. Okay, I'm exaggerating. It's 20 feet away from me. And so it's so easy to just go get on the aerosol because I know there's going to be days when my motivation is not that high. So I've designed my contacts so it's just so easy. And then I further trick myself. On the days that I'm feeling too tired to go work out, I make it even easier. I just say to myself, BJ, just do four minutes on the aerosol and you don't even have to go hard. Four minutes and you're done. You don't even have to dress out, just wear whatever you're wearing. And what I've found in my life and other people have found this too, is it about three and a half minutes? Yeah, I'm not motivated. I'm like, okay, I'm getting this done. Getting it over. I'm not going hard like a CrossFit. But about three and a half minutes, my something changes in me and I want to keep going. So even though I know when I say I'm just going to do four minutes, yeah, odds are I'm going to keep going. Sometimes I stop, but it's, you know, how do you make it so easy that low motivation won't tank you? You'll still do it. Or in this case, with tricking myself on the aerosol, you'll still get started, you know, scale it back. What's four minutes? You know, I could do that. And as a result, I get the workout here in California. We're going to take a quick break for your word from our sponsors. What if there was a 50% off sale happening every time you went shopping for razors? Well, Shaving with Harry's is kind of like that. They offer premium blade refills as low as $2 each, and that's up to 55% off compared to the price of Gillette Fusion Pro Shield. I've been using Harry's for a while now. Switched from the multi-blade cartridge to the safety razor a long time ago because I wanted to save money. Plus, the multi-blade cartridge just, just chewed up my face, got really bad razor burn. Got introduced to Harry's, super, super affordable, and I get a great shave with it. I don't have any razor bumps, razor burns when I use Harry's. Harry's Blade doesn't inflate blade prices because they don't add unnecessary features to their razors like flex balls or heated handles because Harry's is a return to the essentials, quality craftsmanship at a fair price. They source their steel from Sweden and manufacture their blades in a world-class factory in Germany. If you don't love your shave, let them know. and They'll give you a full refund, 100% quality guaranteed, and 1% of proceeds are set aside for nonprofit organizations devoted to helping provide access to better healthcare for men and veterans. So Harry's is an amazing offer for listeners of my show. New customers get $5 off a trial set at harrys.com slash manliness. You get a five blade razor, weighted handle, foaming shave gel with aloe, and a travel cover. Just for $5, you go to harrys.com slash manliness. Again, harrys.com slash manliness, H-A-R-R-Y-S.com slash manliness. Join the millions of guys who've already switched and go to harrys.com slash manliness. The year 2020 shows up a lot in science fiction. A lot of people predicted that by now we'd be teleporting to work, living on Mars. I'm still waiting for that hoverboard. A lot of those predictions were wrong. The truth is, We'll always get the future wrong, which is why we need to get life insurance right. That's where Policy Genius can help. Policy Genius makes finding the right life insurance a breeze. In minutes, you can compare quotes from the top insurers to find your best price. You could save $1,500 or more by using Policy Genius to compare life insurance policies. Once you apply, the Policy Genius team will handle all the paperwork and red tape. And Policy Genius doesn't just make life insurance easy, they can also help you find the right home, auto insurance, and disability insurance. A couple years ago, I was looking for disability insurance. I would have loved to have Policy Genius handle all that red tape. There was so much paperwork I had to do. Would have been nice to have that. So if your science fiction dreams for 2020 still haven't become science fact, don't get discouraged. Get life insurance. It just takes a few minutes to find your best price and apply at policygenius.com. Policy Genius will always get the future wrong, but get life insurance right. And now back to the show. 
So with ability, you're, you're, you're kind of jiggering with things like time, like reduce the amount of time to make it easier yeah. or just put the stuff closer to you. So it's easier. Like, or like you talk about, yeah. you're about food, like, you know, weight loss is driven by what you eat. Well, just make it easy to eat good foods or make it harder to eat bad foods. Bad food. Yeah, exactly. And, and there's a model, not the fog behavior model, but a different model and basically has these components. Something can be difficult if it requires time and you don't have time. So the way to make it easier is to shorten the time frame, like four minutes rather than 30 or 60. It can be difficult if it requires money and you don't have money. On the flip side of getting people to drink less soda, when they put a tax on soda, it decreases consumption. And the way they did that is by making it harder to do, more expensive. Uh, Third is how much physical effort something requires. So for me, knowing here in California, there's going to be moments where I'm not so motivated to work out. Guess what? The gym's 20 feet away. So I've reduced the physical effort. And then uh, the last one I'll talk about is mental effort, how much you have to think about stuff. And if something, let's say you want to stop using social media, you can tweak your ability by making your password really difficult and not allowing your app to save the password. So that doesn't mean you can't launch social media. It just makes it harder to do. You have to think harder and it takes more time. And those things together would. If I ran an experiment on that, it would reliably show that people are less likely <laughs> less likely to use social media if they have really hard passwords that their system didn't store. So there's a systematic way, even that, that, that ability component. Then there's a system underneath that that allows you to hone in on what to tweak in order to get yourself to do the behavior or get yourself to stop doing a behavior. So we talked about motivation. There's high motivation or it's easy to do. You're more likely to do it, but there has to be a prompt. And you said you figured out something with you know, your you know, 20 years of doing this that you kind of hacked the prompt. So what are, what are some insights that you've figured out about prompts to make them more effective to get us to do the things we want to do? Yeah. So there is another model for this. <laughs> I mean, I love models and systems and I'll be brief. There are three sources of prompts. One source is I call a person prompt. It just comes from you. You just happen to remember or something happens internally like, oh, I'm hungry or I have a headache. Those are prompts. You know, they they just come from you. Those are not reliable for the kinds of, most kinds of habits people want to form. Like I'm just going to remember to go to work out or I'm going to just remember to do my weekly expense report. So bad idea, but they, they do happen. Next, you have prompts that I call context prompts. We're surrounded by these. Context prompts are things in your environment, whether it's a post-it note, an alarm, a notification on your app, somebody else reminding you, there's tons of these. And then the third type, and this is the hack. This is, this is, this is what tiny habits leverages. It has to do with your existing routine, and I call it an action prompt. So a routine you already do can serve as your prompt for a new habit. So brushing, which pretty much everybody does can be your reminder or your prompt to floss. Sitting down in your car and and turning it on can be your prompt to turn on your audiobook so you can listen on the way to work. Now, notice you're not just relying on yourself to remember. You're not like having post-it notes everywhere. What you're doing is designing your routine and you're finding something you already do that can serve as your prompt for a new habit. Well, tell us about your pee push-up prompt. <laughs> oh my. 
Yes. So um, an odd example, but it totally works for me anyway, is after I pee, I do two push-ups. At least that's in Tiny Habits, that's the recipe. After I pee, I will do two push-ups. Well, today I did 25 and 12 and 20. So I've peed three times already. I guess that means a lot of water and coffee, but you can do more than two, but the tiny habit is very small. For me, because I work mostly from home, that works really well. It's really after I flush the toilet, I do two push-ups and I can do as many as I want, but you know, if I'm rushed or tired or sick, I do two and I chalk it up as a victory. Then I, of course, I wash my hands and I go about my day. So that seems probably odd to a lot of people, but it allows me to, well, it's not even noon and I've done 50 push-ups. It allows me to get some strength training in throughout the day, at least when I'm working at home. And it allows me to see, almost seamlessly put a new habit into my routine. So it doesn't feel like something that's just bolted on. If you find the right place for new habits, they just feel like that's what I always do. I always, you know, after I go to the bathroom, I do push-ups. Now, if I'm in a public space, I'll do squats. In hotels, I don't really like getting down on the floor. So I'll just do like push-ups against <laughs> the sink. But it just has become really wired in to do that. So it's, I know that example is really quirky, but some things make total sense. Like after you brush, you will floss one tooth. You know, that makes total sense that you'd floss after you brush. Well, I just like that example because it's like, take, it takes something people do every day, multiple times a day, and you build a habit into it. And I think it's, yeah, it's very illustrative of that idea. Well, and ah, do you know what? I'm sure many people listening to this know this. Push-ups are such a good gateway to other kinds of exercises. Even if you only can do a couple wall push-ups or knee push-ups, there's something about it. And I've heard from lots of people on this that makes you, I think there's probably, I think, this is my opinion, not my research. I think there's something physiological that happens. And then you do see gains quickly. You do see your arms get stronger and your chest gets stronger there's something pretty great about push-ups. So for people that can do them safely, if you don't have that habit, figure out where push-ups fit in your life and lower the bar to two or just wall push-ups. And you can do more when you want to, but you don't have to do more. Just focus on consistency of the habit, not size of the habit. So we talked about the model and throughout this model, you can start using the tiny habits method and we've been talking mm-hmm. about this throughout the thing. Like you look for a prompt, right? Uh, when I when I brush my teeth, I will do X. And it could be floss. But the tiny habits thing is like you don't have to floss all your teeth. You'd start really, really tiny, just one tooth. I know. And that sounds crazy to people. But that's, you know, as we talked about my model, by making it so easy and tiny, then you're not subject or you're not affected by fluctuations in your motivation. So that's the hack is you make it so tiny that this thing about us as human beings, the fluctuating motivation won't get in your way. And also, and this surprises people maybe even more, as you progress, you will naturally do more push-ups. You will naturally floss all your teeth. But what you don't do is raise the bar on yourself. Okay, that's the old, not very effective way of thinking. It's like, oh, two push-ups, then I have to do five, then I have to do 10, then I have to do 20, and you raise the bar. What you're doing there is you're setting yourself up to fail. The bar always stays low, but you can do more when you want to. And then, and this is, this is 
part of the mindset of tiny habits, any extra you do, like I did 25 out of the gate this morning. I only had to do two, but it's like, good for me. Awesome. I did 25. I got extra credit. You know, look at me. There is this thing that happens when you keep the bar low, that when you go above it, that feeling of I'm the kind of person who overachieves then affects you in other parts of your day. It shifts your identity. And, and it also, I mean, as you do the start, you know, starting small, like your ability increases, right? Yeah. So um, if you, when you first start out, you're not going to be able to do 50 pushups, but yeah. as you do two pushups every day, you're going to get stronger, which will allow you, it'll make it easier to do more pushups. Exactly. So as exactly, and as it gets easier to do with the same level of motivation, you can do more pushups because now they're easier to do. That's, that's right on. It's a little bit of a technical point and it might be a little subtle, but that's, yeah, that's how it works. And so for most behaviors, not all, but for most behaviors, the more you do it, the easier it gets to do. And pushups is a great example because you get better at form, you know exactly where to do them in your home and you get stronger. And what I love about the tiny habits method, it's basically a recipe, right? Yeah. You just like, after I do this, when I do this, I will do this one really small thing and that's it. And like in the back of the book, I love it. You have like just like this giant list of <laughs> tiny habits, recipes you can do if you want to be more productive, stay organized, business travel. It's like after I walk in the door, I will hang my keys on the door, the, the key hanger, which you, you're supposed to do, but like make it, make that connection to that anchor of walking through your door. Yeah. So glad you brought that up. So yeah, in tiny habits, I have an appendix that has 300 recipes for tiny habits and there's topics like Tiny habits for busy moms, tiny habits for dads who work from home, tiny habits for travel and so on. There's 20 each. And those weren't random guesses. I did some work to figure out what are the most important topics, including topics like tiny habits for caregivers, which can be crushing uh, emotionally and physically. And I wanted to do a thousand and I had a thousand ready to go. And my publisher was like, oh, BJ, this is like 60 pages. There's no way we're putting 60 pages of recipes in the back of the book. We'll give you 300. And I was like, uh, okay, I'll take it. That's, and, that's book number um, two, the thousand yeah. recipes. <laughs> um, so the other insight that I got from this that I've, I've been incorporating with myself and my kids and from Tiny Habits is not only, okay, you make it easy, the thing you want to do, the habit easy, but also connect it to something you already do. But the one thing that I've been doing and teaching my kids is this idea of celebrating yeah. what you do. Why, why is that so important that you celebrate that you lost one tooth or that you did two push-ups? Because I think people hear that like, I'm going to feel kind of silly yeah. celebrating myself. So what's, what's going on there? Let me give the psychological explanation. I would love to hear how you guys are celebrating. So celebration is anything that you can do that will fire off a positive emotion, especially the feeling of success. So for me, a go-to celebration is to do a fist pump and go, awesome. And, or raise my hands over my head, like after I do, you know, push-ups and go, way to go, BJ, you know, kind of the self-chair. And it helps me feel successful. Now, what works for me may not work for you. It's really, it, there's, there's a wide variety of approaches so in Tiny Habits, I list a hundred different ways to celebrate. And I also give some exercises, really simple ones, where you can figure out what is the natural celebration for you. The reason it matters is this. The emotion you feel as you do the habit is what, as you do the new behavior, 
is what wires it into your brain as a habit. In other words, it's emotions that create habits. So if your brain does push-ups and it knows, wow, I'm going to feel awesome after I do these push-ups, it's going to remind you and it's going to want to do push-ups in the future. There's actually a physical restructuring of your brain that happens because of the emotion. And this goes in contrast to what probably everybody has heard about repetition. It takes 21 days and 66 days and repetition creates habits. And that's not true. If you look at the research carefully, it correlates with habit formation, but there's no evidence in that research that shows that repetition causes the habit to form. And what causes it is the emotion that you feel. So if you're really good at, let's say you want to drink more water. So really good at pouring the glass of water. I've got a glass of water here in front of me. And as you're doing that, you put it down on your work desk. So that's my habit. Put it, you know, fill a glass of water, put it down. If I can cause myself to feel positive, to feel successful, what I'm doing is making my brain take note of that and wiring that into my brain. So the more effective you are at celebration, the faster you can create habits. Yeah, the one that I, so my son, he's nine, he does the fist pump in the air. He's like, yes. Damn, good. Mine is silly, but it works for me. I, I sort of like, just like make the noise for the beginning, like the intro guitar riff of Back in Black. By ACDC. Love it. You want to give us a demo? Da da da. Ba da bum. Good. You know, I have some songs too. I have uh, I have the tiger. I have Hey Now, You're a Rock Star, whatever that is. I, I don't know what the words are. Smash Mouth. Calling up the music. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Smash Mouth. Those work for sound effects sometimes. And so I use different celebrations for different things. If I'm in public, I'm not singing a song or I'm not going, do, 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 do. You know, that's. <laughs> If I'm in public, then it's just more of a quiet, like, you nailed this speech. Good for you. I'll just imagine in my head, ACDC. <laughs> now, your nine-year-old son, I am so glad you're teaching him. If I could, and I won't ever do this work because I don't work with kids and don't do research on kids. It's it a lot more complicated. But I'm hoping somebody will do an intervention where they teach kids in fifth grade, you know, nine and 10 years old, how to celebrate in order to wire and habits. And that age before they get all like skeptical and all teenager, like where they have that skill and they learn to apply it, I would just be, wow, I would just love. And I know some parents have done that with their kids like you, but there's not a systematic program for that yet. So delighted to hear that you've shared that with your son and he has a celebration that works. Do you ever find that you celebrate together, that he sees you or you see him and you both go, yeah, good for you? Yeah, we started to do that. So like I see him doing, I'm like, hey, all right, you did it. That's cool. Awesome. We're having fun with it. You know, at first he's kind of, he's a little self, like he's kind of getting that age where he's becoming self-conscious yeah. a bit. But he's kind of at first like, ah, oh, this is kind of, I'm like, no, that's fine. Go do it. And he, he does it. So we've got him. Do you know what? To show him, just go online, find videos of athletes. Yeah, that's where he got it from. He got, I'm doing yeah. the Tiger, I'm doing the Tiger Woods fist bump. He says, that's Here we go. Find athletes he admires and just show videos of them excelling. And they almost always will celebrate. I mean, just watch what happens when Caleb Dressel, the swimmer, you know, nails it in the 50 free and watch what Serena Williams does when she nails a key serve. And if you, and I, I found that's a helpful way for guys who are skeptical or kids that think they're too cool. It's like, look at what these athletes do. That's how they wired in these high performance habits. And so we've talked the tiny method, the tiny habits method. People are probably thinking, oh, well, how's this going to lead to bigger changes? And as you said, 
as you do this stuff more and more, you're working on consistency, your ability increases. And so you'll be able to start adding more yeah. and you don't have to like force it though, but it's just going to come like today, I'm going to do 10 pushups instead of two. Yeah. Yeah. So you naturally will do more. So the habit that was designed as tiny, you naturally will do more. So it grows, but also you people naturally do other habits that are related. So there's this ripple effect. And I've seen this in my data since the beginning. I started teaching tiny habits in 2011, you know, five day program online, helping people and I'm measuring it week after week after week. Cause I'm that kind of person. Of course I want to measure stuff. And what I found from the beginning is there are these ripple effects. People make other changes in their life naturally. So for example, Let's say somebody wires in the habit of taking three calming breaths. Like after I sit down for my morning lunch break, say they're at work, after they sit down, I'll take three calming breaths and just keep, try to keep my mind free and clear. Once they feel successful doing that habit, what they will find is they start taking those three calming breaths at other parts of their life, even without designing an explicit habit for it. So they, it generalizes. So um, in my own life, the way that's worked is even, even when I'm sleeping and there's all these things going through my head, like, oh my gosh, I got this at that. What's going on here? My students, my class, just there's this reaction. Once you start thinking and knowing that three calming breaths can shift your level of anxiety, I guess, or your, increase your calm, you will naturally start applying that elsewhere in your life. So there is this ripple effect that happens to almost everybody. So you're talking about creating new habits, but you also talk about, well, people would say breaking habits, but you don't actually like that. You say untangle bad habits. Yeah. So yeah. Why, why untangle bad habits instead of using breaking bad habits? Yeah, when it comes to stopping behaviors, one phrase that we people often use that takes us in the wrong direction is breaking a bad habit. I think that's a bad word to use or maybe not the optimal word because it implies that it happens in a moment. If you just apply enough force in one moment, it's broken, you're done, you're not smoking anymore, you're not drinking, you're not gambling, whatever. And that's not how these habits work. And so instead, I outline how you should think about it or can think about it as untangling a bad habit. Um, and that sets up a much better expectation in three ways. Number one, it's not just one behavior. It's a whole bunch of different snarls, whether that's smoking or drinking or snacking or what have you. Let's take snacking. You, you, if you think, wow, I really got to stop the habit of bad snacking, there's probably a variety of times during the day when you snack. And so think of each one of those as a tangle in this big knot. And what you do is you find the easiest tangle and you get rid of that one first. You don't start with the hardest one. You start with the easiest one. Then you go to the next easiest and so on. And the other reason I really like untangling is that it sets up, when you see a big tangle, even if it's just with your uh, phone headset, it's all tangled up. You look at it and you have no idea how to solve it instantly. But you know if you just untangle one thing and then you know you can get it done. And I think... For a lot of these bad habits, that's how people feel. They look at something that they're overwhelmed. How do I stop this you know, smoking habit or this snacking habit or you know, snapping at my kids? And it might just seem like, 
I don't know how to get this undone. But just like untangling a cord, it's a process. And if you just start with the first thing and then do the next thing, you can do it. Yeah. So that involves, it's sort of using this behavioral model again, going back, you said, okay, my habit is, or the thing I want to do is stop spending so much time on social media. Well, that's sort of abstract. There's a lot of behaviors associated with that. So you sort of do like a a sort of a brainstorm. What are all the behaviors that I do that cause me to surf on social media all the time? And then you go for the easy one, stop the easy one first. And then you use this stuff of like, okay, I can make it harder. Mm -hmm. So, you know, making it harder, if I make it harder to do, I'm less likely to do it or increase my motivation. But, and then also find a prompt there and like find out what the prompt is, maybe eliminate that prompt. And I imagine as people start doing, working with this, this model and the the, the method, like it's a skill that they get better at. Like it actually gets easier to do behavior change. Yeah. And I think the best, and this is not in the book, the best analogy is maybe driving. Before you learn how to drive, it's like, oh my gosh, how do I do that? It feels so complicated. I'm scared to do it. But now once you've learned how and you've done it, it's just like easy. You don't even think about it. Behavior change seems complicated, overwhelming. People are afraid of it, but you can learn the skills of change to the point where it's like, no big deal. Like if you want to create a new habit, you do it. If you want to design a habit out of your life, you do it. And you don't make a big deal of it. Just like you don't make a big deal of driving, you know, to the airport. It, it all starts with a, a single floss tooth. Boom, it can, you know, <laughs> I mean, if you can, and I, li- I like that not only because it's true, that's how a big part of the method back in 2010, when I was goofing around myself, that was a big deal. Next, your dentist will love you or your hygienist will love you. But it's the same process. You know, the way that you wire in the habit of flossing one tooth is the same way you do all the other habits. So if you're not flossing, start there and learn how the method works, skill up. And then as your skill increases, you can tackle harder and harder things. Well, BJ, where can people go to learn more about the book and your work? Yay. Well, tinyhabits.com about the book and you can buy it at Costco. You can buy it at your independent bookseller, which would be awesome. You can buy it online. And then more generally about me, bjfog.com. Fantastic. Well, BJ Fogg, thanks for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. My guest today was Dr. BJ Fogg. He is the author of the book, Tiny Habits. It's available on amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. You can find out more information about his work at his website, bjfogg.com. That's Fogg with two Gs. Also check out our show notes at aom.is slash tinyhabits, where you can find links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the AOM Podcast. Check out our website at artofmanliness.com where you can find our podcast archives as well as thousands of articles we've written over the years. A lot of them are about habits, so check that out. And if you'd like to enjoy ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast, you can do so on Stitcher Premium. Head over to Stitcher Premium, sign up, use code MANLINESS when you sign up to get a free month trial. Once you're signed up, download the Stitcher app on Android or iOS and you can start enjoying ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate if you take one minute to give us a review on Apple Podcast or Stitcher, whatever podcast platform you use. It helps out a lot. And if you done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who you think would get something out of it. As always, thank you for the continued support. Until next time, this is Brett McKay. Remind you not only listen to the AOM podcast, but put what you've heard into action.